Welcome, this is the Teaching Excellence Podcast for all things FE, teaching, learning, assessment, quality and possibly a few other things along the way. Hosted by Steph Wilkinson and Jade Gibson, leaders in FE who want to support others and make a difference and hopefully spread a little happiness whilst we're at it. Hello and welcome to the Teaching Excellence podcast. Today I am joined by Rachel Lofthouse and I'm really grateful um, that she's agreed to come on and chat to me all things coaching, mentoring and professional development. So um, welcome Rachel. Hi it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Um, How are you? I am fine thank you. It's Friday afternoon, it's been a long week but I'm fine. Yeah, good. It's so nice to see you. Um, why don't you, because you have lots of different things that you're involved in, um, introduce yourself to everyone and just give a flavour of some of the things that you do. Okay, um, so I currently work at Leeds Beckett University in the Carnegie School of Education and I am a professor um, and my specialism is teacher education and actually probably within that my specialism is coaching, mentoring and Um, other aspects of professional learning in which people come together to learn with and from each other. Great and um, I've been involved in collective ed uh, and um, a little bit and a lot in different over over time and um, I've always been super intrigued into the work that you do and um, I felt really passionate actually about that work um, especially as you mentioned, the coaching and mentoring, but more so recently I've become fascinated with this professional learning and the collaborative approach to professional learning that we can adopt, which has or is seen to have quite a significant impact. So um, tell us a little bit about some of the conversations and some of the things that you've been seeing in education recently, um, including the things like common challenges or including the things that seem to work quite well. Such a good question, wide ranging question, but it's a good question. So I guess um, you mentioned Collective Ed. So Collective Ed is the uh, research and practice centre that I set up and I lead. And I guess most of my conversations happen through that network in a variety of different ways, but it, it focuses on coaching, mentoring and professional learning. And I guess that means that a lot of the conversations are exactly about that. Um, what I, I, I guess what's interesting is this period in which people are making having to make significant adjustments to their working patterns, including the ways in which they engage with professional development, engaging with each other, regardless of what career stage they're at, whether they're, you know, student teachers working with mentors, early career teachers, uh, whether they are working in early years, primary, secondary, FE, whether they're leaders, everybody's having to make a number of adjustments on the back of a year in which so much changed. In education but kind of looking forward to a point where there are some things that people are extraordinarily keen to um, go back to to retain um, and to kind of you know make good again and then there are other interesting things in education where people have almost seen the light and they think that there, there, there may well be alternatives that we haven't fully explored that mm. started to emerge during the pandemic um, but that actually um, you know, we we could lose sight of if we just rush back to the old normal. So it's interesting for me to be 
able to talk to people across those different roles and across those different sectors at this point of time. And, and in particular, for example, this isn't a conversation as such, but reading some of the portfolios that some of my students have been putting together. So I run a program called the Postgraduate Certificate in Coaching and Mentoring for Education Practitioners. And it's a really interesting bunch of students every year, mixture of school and college leaders, practitioners, people who are working permanently and freelance, people in a, a range of different education roles. And, and as they weave together a portfolio to describe some of their practices and how it's how it's developing in the context of their workplace or in the context of their consultancy work um, around coaching and mentoring, you start to have these layers revealed to you of the complexity and the nuance and the detail and this kind of clever combination of strategic thinking, but also the need to grab hold of opportunities and build relationships. So it can't all just be about management and strategy. It's got to be much more human as well. So sometimes I kind of read those portfolios as if I'm in a conversation. And particularly because actually I've been working with a group of students for a number of months, you kind of know exactly what their voice sounds like and you can hear them through their portfolios. So it, that I suppose, like everybody, it's it's just fascinating watching that. It's somehow also quite um, daunting watching how policy just keeps moving on and moving on. Mm. Um, and I work a lot in the school sector. And in particular, I think at the moment, there's a genuine um, sense of we've got this combination of opportunity, but also potential, this is going to sound a bit over the top, catastrophe around the early career teachers and their mentors, because depending on what you see, what conversations you have, you either get this sense that this is the best thing since sliced bread, the new early career framework and the mentoring support that's being added to the early career teachers um, work, or you start to see this mounting anxiety and panic about the level of work and the prescription of that work the early career teachers and mentors are being expected to do together mm. at a time when schools are still actually really struggling um, as a result of the pandemic. So there's an interesting conversation emerging around that as well. Yeah, no, there really is because um, FE is an interesting one because the the early careers framework doesn't necessarily apply um, as a, you know, this has to be done. Um, but people are looking to that for the guidance and the thinking around what is that and how we can benefit from that in FE. And I suppose that's kind of, um, it's always been the case that coaching and mentoring, and especially for early careers teachers in FE, is very variable in depending on the setting that you're in. And I think um, they have always looked to what are the good practice, uh, what is the good practice, what are the models that are out there that will support us with early career teachers. So I've had this conversation just this week. Again, it's not the it's not an unusual conversation, um, which is, you know, we have um, teachers that come in on full time timetables and um, we have teachers that also sign up and do the uh, Cert Ed or PGCE at the same time as being a new teacher with a whole new timetable. And then we ask them to attend um, you know, CPD sessions, professional development sessions internally as well. Um, we try to add in the coaching and mentoring if we've got coaching and mentoring capacity within the, the teams. Um, so essentially, we're trying to give all the support, but at the same time, there's not always that 
real wiggle room because people have got full-time teaching time teaching load or teaching timetable so we're kind of um going well we're trying to give all this help but at the same time people are going yeah but I'm drowning over here and so there are colleges actually and there are initiatives now and it's just about utilizing them effectively where we can take teaching time down and we can then support properly um the the quality of that across the country i think is is still very variable and we do see um you know a, a dropout if you like mm -hmm. of new new teachers so it is something that people have got their eye on yeah and i, I think that um in in the school sector mm. um many many people have welcomed this move to a two-year early career yeah. framework as opposed to a one-year nqt because it just sounds more reasonable it sounds like we can pace ourselves it sounds yeah. like we could, if like we're we're acknowledging up front that it will take another good two years mm. for you to feel really confident about your practice to feel really um knowledgeable in the areas that you need to be knowledgeable in you know and, and that is how it's being sold and um and, and I, I don't think anybody would dispute that and I don't think that that is any different to any other sector or you know any other profession you know if you were walking in as a new solicitor or a new dentist or a new teacher you wouldn't expect that just because you've walked off the back of one single qualification you are fully fledged and that you don't need a degree of further induction support and training and that you can't learn from the people who are already there around you so I think there's always a kind of very positive this is worth doing and people then buy into it and they um you know they got they are recruited to support it so for example the early career framework has a, a national network of facilitators mm -hmm. that each provider is recruiting to help facilitate the training and then they've got the mentors in school that are then released for training to so they can do mentoring in a way that is uh, perhaps a little bit more prescribed but also perhaps a little bit more uh, considered in mm -hmm. the ecf than it ever has been but almost immediately what well, it's only the beginning of October we've run into problems and it's such a simple problem that some schools are having which is that in order to release um, early career teachers so teachers in their first year mm. um, and their mentors for the for the training offer that is there mm. which might be the whole day or a half day online or in person depending on how what the model is for different providers that requires them to backfill their time Mm. Um, somebody's got to teach their classes mm. and actually um, that's coming at the same time as many schools have got a reduction in staff available because of COVID mm. and at the same time the DfE is saying you we will give you the money for this but we will only give it to you at the end of the school year mm. so you've actually got to put all that investment in yourself first and again you could argue what well, doesn't matter the money's going to come somewhere mm. but many school budgets are extraordinarily tight so a simple little finance tweak could actually make this work and I, it's really hard to know why that wasn't recognized at the beginning but it's that joining up of all the dots isn't it so yeah. we 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 genuinely do things in the right spirit we do yeah. things believing and hoping that there's going to make a difference people put time and effort in but just sometimes or perhaps more than just sometimes very very frequently there's one little technical aspect which yeah. throws the whole thing off kilter um, and I think that is what's beginning to happen but not across the board there will be very different experiences and as you say 
in colleges, there are huge variations in the degree to which coaching and mentoring are um, developed and deployed. And it's exactly the same in schools um, in, in England and, and, and anywhere else, to be fair. And so not only have you got a relatively rigid system, but you're actually also applying that relatively rigid system now on top of a hugely variable starting point. Yeah. And I'm not sure there's quite in, enough thought given to that because it's a, it's a system. Yeah. And like you say, the, the notion is, is, is the right spirit, the two years support for people. Um, in FE, there is a, uh, a funding stream called Taking Teaching Further, which is to support um, or build capacity for people to support new staff, have reduction timetables. Again, there's the, the actual issues around staff uh, recruitment or, um, you know, um, availability or uh, like say especially at the minute with um people still being ill or having to isolate etc there's there's issues there so um there are things that can help us to do this better but as you said in practice um there's still quite a bit of variability and um there are often like little steps or loops in the system that mean it makes it harder than maybe it could be mm -hmm. um but i'm interested in um, i know you've been doing well you do lots of research um and i'm i'm particularly interested in um some of the research that you've done most recently and you have um had a paper published with Trista, um, who I met through Collective Ed um, and have been friends with um, since then. And that's all about contextual coaching and collaborative professionalism. And if there's anything that ever resonates with me, it's um, contextual coaching, although I would have never have called it that, you know, this um, coaching in, in and taking people, um, taking situations into account very like I'm having a very personal approach to that but also this anything around collaborative professionalism um I'm I'm always interested in because I see too much that we do things on our own and everything's in, in isolation and um, so talk to me a little bit about um that paper and when I say paper um people will be able to get hold of it eventually won't they it's published so that particular paper is published in the International Journal of Mentoring and Coaching and Education, or Coaching and Mentoring and Education, to be fair, I've forgotten which way around that goes. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it's, it is one of the kind of, you know, peer-reviewed paper that for most people is behind a paywall, which yeah. is unfortunate. However, it is legitimate for people to contact authors directly, and authors can always send the paper and obviously if people are registered with academic libraries then they can access as well but we appreciate that not everybody is um but absolutely if anybody's really interested in the, the whole paper you're more than welcome to contact me and i will uh, make sure you can read it the um okay I'll, I'll, let me just go back because you you highlighted the word contextual um and i'm I was, it just made me think where did we get that word from <laughs> Um, and I, what I'm now remembering is that the first time I used the word contextual coaching was in reference to um, some work that was being undertaken. And it was in primary schools, so different settings to many of your listeners. Mm. But it, was, it was happening in 10 primary schools in um, North Yorkshire, and it was funded by the Department for Education. And it was part of the Strategic School Improvement Fund work. And what the project was, was across two and a half years, roughly, 
um, across these 10 primary schools, there was going to be a focus on trying to uh, close the gap, raise standards, all that kind of terminology around children's attainment in maths specifically, um, and particularly um, with a focus on the, the potential of more metacognitive teaching strategies that come up pretty high up the, like the league table on the teacher's toolkit, the EEF teacher's toolkit, the potential of the metacognitive teaching strategies in raising attainment in maths by mm. changing the pedagogy that teachers deployed. And with a particular focus, there's lots of focuses here yeah. on um, populations of children in these 10 schools where um, the vast majority of children came from service families, so the military family children, and not all of them would stay in a single primary school throughout that right. period of time because the families would be moved around different garrisons and barracks. Yeah. So um, that was the that was a piece of work which um, Collective Ed was asked to evaluate. So we were the formal evaluators of this this strategic school improvement fund project. What the um, program leaders chose to do was they chose to employ a lead practitioner in fact two lead practitioners which actually became three because the people who applied were all more than happy to do job share so it was a it was a full-time post for two people but three people took it and they worked between them across 10 primary schools and that was a full-time job mm. which meant that actually those primary schools had access to a lead practitioner roughly a day a week uh, for two and a half years, which is not a bad um, call out, really. Mm -hmm. um, and the lead practitioners, because it was a team of three, what was really interesting was how in the first term that they were employed and they were new to the settings, they weren't, they'd come into the area from uh, for the first time, mm -hmm. they actually um, had to construct between themselves a model of working with the schools and the teachers. Mm -hmm. And as they started to think more carefully and critically and make sense of the practice and make sense of who they were going to work with in the schools, they um, essentially alighted on the idea that they needed to become coaches. And they gained some experience from various training and reading and talking a lot to each other and a bit of piloting of the work. And they then started to coach teachers on a weekly basis um, so one lead teacher in each school for um, a sustained, quite a sustained period of time. Mm -hmm. So they're called lead practitioners, but essentially they were coaches. And the really critical thing here is that with a variety of forms of um, support and advice, they've created and constructed a coaching model that was suited to them as coaches, to the project, to the needs of the teachers, and to the, uh, their understanding of the schools and the pupils and the, and the teaching of maths in those schools. Yeah. So it became, it became a very bespoke program. Now that's not to say that you wouldn't recognize its features and its characteristics. It had some co-planning, some team teaching, some modeling, some debriefing. Um, and then as time went on, the relationship went from being between one coach and one teacher in each school to actually bringing those teachers together across the 10 schools into a bit of a network mm. with them going to see each other teaching and creating more of a kind of shared knowledge base between them so that was that that be, you know that evolved partly from feedback from the teachers partly as the practitioners started to think what else can we do to add impact so the whole the whole project kind of just emerged um evolved and and in lots of ways worked really well. Yeah. Um, and then it stopped because the DfE funding stopped because it was time limited. And unfortunately, there was no spare cash 
amongst these 10 schools in this teaching school alliance to say, well, we'll just keep going. That's you know, inevitably the money ran out. So, but for a period of time, there was this piece of work going on. We evaluated it. And as we talked to the lead practitioners, to the head teachers, to the steering group and to the teachers who they worked with and started to unpick and describe this model of coaching, um, we use the term specialist contextual coaching. Okay. So specialist because it was specializing in the teaching of math through metacognition mm -hmm. and contextual because it had been created to meet the needs of those specific schools and that particular project. Mm -hmm. And and also contextual in that as the um, school, if you like the characteristics of teaching in the school and the understanding of the teachers in the school developed and changed, the, the coaching changed as well. So it wasn't just continue to apply the same model, the same model, the same model, yeah. it, it evolved. And obviously coaching, because it is as good a word as any to describe what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But what they weren't doing was what some people would consider to be, if you like, classic coaching, which is, um, you know, not acting with an expert mind. You know, these coaches, they were, they were primary teachers. So of yeah. course they could draw on that experience. Um, they had all experience of teaching maths because all primary teachers do and they and between them they were really thinking hard learning more and more about metacognition in math so mm. it, there, there was that kind of feedback loop that was existing which included the specialist expert advice but it wasn't just an onslaught of information and training it was much more subtle as the as the different teachers work with them over time so when we wrote the evaluation and described this model we, we just chose the term specialist contextual coaching so that's the first bit roughly at the same time as I was doing that I was also really really fortunate to have got to know Trista mm -hmm. online through Twitter and then to have been given some funding by USET, so the University Council for the Education of Teachers, to travel over to Western Quebec to meet Trista and meet some of the teachers and school leaders that she worked with. Mm. And as you know, Trista has developed and has researched and gained a PhD um, in relation to what they call mentor coaching. And it's to do with the induction of teachers who are new into the school board. And it's a it's an interesting and, and quite, again, nuanced model of mentor coaching. It has been in existence for 10 years mm. um, and it's matured significantly. In fact, it's 13, 14 years now. But when I was there, it was about uh, 10 years. Um, so when Trista and I started, you know, we'd have these informal conversations and we sort of thought, and, and we also, both of us were familiar with the work of Andy Hargreaves and Michael O'Connor on collaborative professionalism. Um, and indeed, I was really lucky when I went over to meet Trista. Trista's um, is is connected with Andy. We went out for a meal and we had a lovely you know, chat, mostly about everything Canadian and how wonderful Canada was, as opposed to England, where Andy's from. And but generally, also just getting a sense of where is this? I, where have these ideas come from? What does it mean? So we were fascinated by collaborative professionalism, but what we are specialists in really is understanding mentoring and coaching. And we both read the book on collaborative professionalism, and we both felt that there was a gap because there is very little reference to mentoring or coaching. In fact, it really isn't there in their case studies. So they've got these wonderful case studies of school systems and schools around the world, which have taken a collaborative professionalism approach to school improvement and really interesting rich descriptions of what that has meant in each context mm. and we were talking to each other a lot about the different contexts in which we saw coaching happening and working and also kind of strangely freaked out by the fact that Andy and Michael hadn't really cottoned on to it 
didn't emerge, didn't appear. We wondered what, why that was. So we thought, well, what we could do is just try and uh, do a bit of analysis using data that we already have, her case study, my case study, which we agreed was, you know, we could call contextual coaching. They're different. The whole point is they're suited to those contexts that they don't follow a particular model. But we could then analyze some of the um, processes, the evolution and the impacts mm. of those two approaches in the light of what Andy and Michael talk about as the 10 tenets of collaborative professionalism and also in the kind of more generic sense of the the kind of before between and betwixt I think I've got that right I might have got that wrong the kind of well what went on before how is this school or this system connecting to other people and other organizations and other policies as it develops its models for school improvement and then how is it sustained? What goes on afterwards? So we were kind of using the two different lenses of collaborative professionalism to revisit our data. And it was a, it was a really interesting piece of work to do during the pandemic because Trista and I could sit, you know, every, every few weeks we got together for three, four hours and, and kept revisiting this data and kept making sense of it. And um, eventually we wrote the paper and eventually, several cycles later, it got accepted because you do this kind of backwards and forwards with peer review process, which feels like an endless um, job. But it does end and you get to a point where you think, you know what, thank God for that, because that paper makes so much more sense than it did at the beginning. So that's that's what I've been interested in. And critically, it's this notion of, you know, if if we um, there's always going to be more than one way of improving a system. But if one way of improving a system is taking a collaborative professionalism approach, mm. it isn't the same as professional collaboration. It's richer, it's broader, it means a bit more. Yeah. But if we see that as one possible route that we also buy into because it has some integrity, it has some humanity, it has some you know, wider credibility. It's not just about hiring and firing and just getting you know, that kind of a brutal approach to improvement. Um, if we take that as a, as a plausible, valid, evidence-based approach to school or college improvement, then actually, is coaching a potential part of that? Can we explain why some forms of coaching sustained over a decent period, built up over time in the context, mm. actually have this potential to work mm. really quite well? So that's where the model came, the um, paper came from. Mm. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to me because I think that one of the things you said that really resonated with me is there are lots of things that can contribute to improvement. And, and actually, I think we forget to stand back and look at that we sometimes can for in a quality improvement role or um, someone who is associated with or driving or leading or being part of quality improvement. We always we're, we're always looking for what well what are the ways that this happens, but actually there is that whole suite of things that happens, and depending on your college or your school or your context, there isn't a right or wrong way of doing things necessarily. It's more that it's about finding the things that are going to work for you. And what I quite liked about some of the things that you're saying where this idea of the model pulls on lots of different bits and you and you and it was about it, it analyzes a situation where you have got these things happening in lots of different ways but actually you're just looking at the 
way in which that then supported school improvement. Mm. And I think there's something there about, there are lots of ways of improving schools or colleges, particularly if we think the measure of improvement is a bounce in the data, whatever we choose to measure at that time. And I'm not saying that, you know, the qualifications that people gain and, and improvement in that is not meaningful, because of course it's meaningful, it's significant, it's important. Um, and you could say, well, there's no right and wrong because there are lots of ways. So you make a choice. Yeah. I think you can, I do think it's important to recognize how in, how values and ethics play a part. Um, so there may not be a, a single right way to improve the outcomes of children and young people in schools and colleges, but there may be ethically better ways. Okay. There may be ways that are more finely tuned with the values of educators as opposed to, let's say, the values of accountants and bankers. Yes. Not to say bankers and accountants are bad people, yeah. but you know the, the values that they need to bring to their work about precision, about forecasting, about all that kind of thing, not necessarily the only values that we need to bring to ours. Um, there'll be lots of overlap in a Venn diagram, but I think what we've done too often as we've kind of employed, you know, leadership principles or school improvement principles and processes is we've, we've assumed that if something gets results, it must be, it must be right. Yeah. And we've, we've overlooked some of the fallout. There's always a potential fallout. There's always winners, there's always losers. And we've kind of thought, but it's got results. So it must be okay to be doing this. And we've detached ourselves from some of the values, the philosophical values, the ethical values uh, that perhaps brought us into being an educator in the first place or being, you know, that drove us to want to be a school leader. So uh, one of our colleagues, um, Steph, that you know on our advisory board is Johnny Utley mm -hmm. from Teal um, Trust over in East Yorkshire, Holland, around there, mm -hmm. Holland, York, I think. Um, and I know that he's done a lot of work around ethical leadership, which is kind of that, again, that reminder that, of course, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but actually we need to apply some ethical principles because we're talking about children, about families, about community, about colleagues. You know, he's done, he's written that book, uh, what's the book called? Um, Putting Staff First. Staff First, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that even that title just raised heckles and heckles for some people because you think, well, no, you put the children first. And his argument would be, well, we are putting the children first, but you can't do that if you if you disregard the staff, if you yeah. you know if you diminish the capacity. Now he would probably be able to look at his schools and say, you know what, we still haven't got that bit right yet. That bit's not mm. quite right. There's all sorts of things that, of course, in a complex organisation, there is still work to do. But it's that sense of being alive to and being confident about and being upfront about the values that you hold and why they are part of your decision-making lens. Now, that doesn't mean that all educators, all school leaders carry that same set of mm. values, but at least if we're honest about the values that we do bring to our work um, and we share those with people, then we can make decisions about, you know, is that the place I want to be or is it not? Is this the team I want to be in or is it not? You know we're very diverse as a group of people. Of course, we're gonna have different lenses, different perspectives, but we tend to kind of, you know, sometimes on Twitter, people go, well, that's just an ideology. And you kind of go, do you know what? You're using the word ideology um, to describe something that's actually just a value set. Yeah. And I'm not at all ashamed of my values. Yeah. <laughs> 
kind of get over it, really. I, I'm proud of my values. I don't yeah. I don't need it to be insulted as an ideological, you know, bias. It, it's a it's a set of values. Yeah. So I'm going to hold on to those. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and there's and there's a few things actually that have cropped up over over time as these different conversations I've I've had in different places. One is people don't often know what their values are, or they don't they haven't had those conversations, or as a college as an organisation, they've got a set of values which is like the college values that everyone can rhyme off. But for, as part of quality improvement planning, we we don't think about matching that work to the values for example and and it's just reminding me of a lot of conversations that I'm having at the minute which are um you know there's a lot of focus on process and not vision and as part of that sort of vision work it's about what do we stand for um, and and pulling in on values mm-hmm. um but uh, but even just a message a couple of days ago uh, i don't think it was yesterday it must have been a couple of days ago now on tw- um linkedin was very much a conversation that was um someone sort of agreeing with something that i'd written on on linkedin but it was we had that conversation that was this is this needs to be about people and not process anymore this is about as you said children families communities and therefore how we go about supporting whether it be individual teachers whether it be um supporting students groups of students whole organizations if we can put people at the center of that conversation um so how we accept or acknowledge our humanness and the values that we we lead by um, I think education would be a very different place if those types of conversations were happening more often compared to where we're at at the minute yeah and that reminds me um, of a, a bit of my if you like the articulation of my thinking around my PhD and, and it was, it's an interesting one it, it sticks with me it seems it still it resonates um, and, but it's also one which people have sometimes not contested but just kind of gone Aren't you being a bit picky there? So I'll just explain it. So I, when I was doing my PhD, I did it by publication, which meant the research had been conducted and been published in a variety of different sources. And it was a variety of pieces of research rather than one huge, great big three-year, five-year kind of megalithic project. Um, and uh, then you have to write this doctoral statement, which, which forces you to revisit your research and to think about the substance mm. of it as a whole and the significance of it and you know, what you've learned as well as a researcher. And you know, my research, as you can imagine, was around mentoring, coaching, developing tools to support that, such as video, also teachers working um, collaboratively as action researchers, that kind of thing. Um, and I kind of looked at it and looked at it and thought about it and thought, well, what, what am I seeing here across these pieces, across these 11 papers? And I realized that I was seeing, although it wasn't written into any of the papers, a difference between process and practice or processes and practices. I think we always have to acknowledge the um, plural. And um, that, and, in ed- and I'm not saying that this is a perfect Oxford English dictionary definition, but what I was sort of able to start to see and start to describe were that, of course, there are certain processes that we employ, adopt, develop that really help us do the work efficiently or, um, you know, capture data or, you know, and that actually it is really helpful if everybody's on board and we we know how to use those processes in a way that gives us the right feedback we need the right information we need and that you know 
we can be trained to to do those things so something as I mean something as simple as taking a register you know if, if everybody if everybody in school or college failed to take registers you'd never know which learners had ever turned up mm. you wouldn't know whose well-being you needed to you know look at so that's the sort of a process mm. uh, that and you know sometimes that's digital sometimes whatever anyway it's a process um but there are other things so you know if we're all going to use um you know let's say we're going to use padlets for a particular mm-hmm. program well we all have to learn how to use a padlet otherwise it's not going to be very functional you know we've got half the team can't be asked half the team are kind of away with it that's not a very functional um we haven't, we haven't adopted that process very well. Mm. And I've had lots of things in my life that I think, well, I haven't adopted that process very well. You know, sorry about that, but I will try harder. And often it is just try harder, put your mind to it, try harder. Yeah. But those things, and they make things tick, you know, that kind of keeps things jogging along and, they're, and they aren't irrelevant, they're, they're quite critical, but they must not be used to replace practice and practices. Yeah. So for me, the notion of practice, practice is something that people do. Yeah. You know, we, we take our whole selves into our teaching practice as practitioners. If we are talking to colleagues, we are building a relationship with them. Uh, and it's a relationship that is centered on the practice that we share or the practice that we, you know, we cooperate around. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that practice is, it's a human thing. It requires us to be thoughtful. It requires us to be critical. It requires us to be compassionate. It requires us to be, and that's, processes don't require that. Processes are the sorts of things that can be turned into a technical fix. Yeah. Practices are the human things that can't be. So when you talk about process and vision, and I'm kind of scaling that vision right down to the individual, and I'm thinking process and practice. Mm-hmm. And if I look at what goes on in terms of professional learning, and it's going to be cute. I haven't read the EEF report that's been published today on professional development, but I will. Um, it'll be really interesting to see which bits of that research in my categorization are referring to processes that are effective and work, and which bits perhaps are about the practice of learning, the practice of being an educator, the practices that we have and share together. So that's an interesting, you know, your vision, my practices, there's some interesting things going on there, I think. Great. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been absolutely wonderful to chat to you and um, I'm hoping people will be able to hear lots of things that they could take away and think about. But if they want to find you, they can find you on Twitter um and um yeah if they wanted to read the paper um they can um drop you a message but otherwise um they can find collective ed and um uh all of the working papers as well that are available to read um, on the internet so i'll put the links in the podcast notes too so people can find you and find collective ed too but thank you so much for joining me it's been great thank you for asking me it's been a joy well thank you so much thanks for listening to the teaching excellence podcast leave us a voice message in anchor tweet us and let us know what you think or what you want to hear on the show tune in next week for more have an amazing week and be the best version of you